step out, take control of your business, and decide to be your very best as a leader right now. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Payton with the Lead Now podcast. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with my friend, Rich Barr. Rich is a CEO group chair for Vistage, which means he helps CEOs achieve better results, grow their companies faster, and maximize their impact as leaders. Prior to becoming a Vistage chair, Rich has over 20 years of experience as the president and CEO of MGS Machine a family business that he and his team grew into a successful multinational manufacturing company. He is also an author and the co-founder of Threshold to New Life, an organization which helps people in the Twin Cities bridge a temporary gap in their lives. Rich, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Do me a favor. Tell us about your life today with Threshold for New Life and Vistage. Give the listener a sense of how you spend your days and weeks these days. <laughs> yeah, so Threshold to New Life first, probably. So I got up at 3.45 this morning. I was downtown Minneapolis by 4.20. We served breast to... Well, we're in a COVID era right now. So before COVID, it was about 100 homeless people a day. Right now, it's probably closer to 40. We serve a, a hot, nutritious breakfast and provide some other basic services to uh, homeless people in Minneapolis. So I'm also a volunteer chaplain, so I support two shelters. So last evening, I got home about 9.30. actually work in the streets and two shelters in and out. Again, connecting with men that are struggling Everything from having casual conversations to prayer to giving out hygiene kits, socks, jackets, things like that. So that and and my wife, Carla, who operates the housing side of what we do, she actually works with people that are struggling with their housing financially. And we provide what we call a small kind of a micro grant. So we match money that they can raise for the gap that they have. And when they raise their money and provide it to the landlord, we match it and we confirm with the landlord that they're in the clear. And so last year we did that 384 times. This year it's going to be off significantly because of COVID. But so that's a pretty big deal. So we're kind of attacking at ground level tactically, like hands and feet, immediate needs, but also trying to reduce homelessness by helping people keep the housing that they have. Hmm. So that's the nonprofit charitable stuff that I do. So my day job, if you would call it a job, is I have the honor of leading just short of a couple dozen local president CEOs, business leaders, and through an organization called Visage, which is it's an international CEO organization. There's about 24,000 members total. I think there's about a thousand chairs. So I'm one of a thousand people around the world that do this. And we meet Monthly, uh, I do one-to-ones each month as well. And it's really about helping leaders lead better, make better decisions, and bring better results to their organizations, their families, and their entire life. So I was the benefactor of being a member of Vistage for 16 years. And so now the script is flipped. So I'm the old guy with the gray hair and supposedly know some things so I can help try to be a guide to help people reach some of the goals that they have. Awesome. So it sounds like you're spending 100% of your working time giving back. Yeah, I'm, I had a big shift in my life where I was pursuing success for a lot of years. And I took some time some years ago and decided that I wanted to shift from success to significance as being kind of my filter for making decisions that I got involved in. 
so yeah, so I think a significance, I think about having an impact in people's lives, building relationships, and very interesting. So Vistage, mentoring CEOs and working with homeless people, to me, both equally fit that same mission, even though they're very different markets, I guess, if you would call it that, right? I don't know. My stints as CEOs led me to feel like a homeless person quite often. So I, I totally get the connection. Yeah. <laughs> you can be out of sorts quite quickly in either uh, endeavor. So indeed, Rich, take us back to that change. That's a really interesting thing to share early in an interview like this. What was it that precipitated this change from a pursuit of success to significance? Yeah, I, you know, most of the great things, I mean, I feel like I have a small strategic windshield and a giant strategic rearview mirror. Like most of the best strategic things I've ever done are usually from the result of reflection and looking back and going, hey, we kind of got going down this path. Let's pursue that. That makes sense. Let's keep doing that. And so I was in a small group Bible study with a guy that decided to go down outside of a homeless shelter and start serving oatmeal out of the back of his van about 14 years ago. And because he was a friend of mine, I'm, I'm like, hey, Dave, how often are you doing that? He's like, every day. I'm like, every single, yeah, every day. Well, who's helping you? Well, I'm just doing it. Like, no, 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 no. You need some help. So Let's figure out how to help. So me, along with some other fellows, decided to take some different days and step in and help. And it was a bit serendipitous because through that is what really, that's what triggered kind of the heart change for me to really find that I had been given a, a gift of being able to love people that the rest of the world sees as despicable. And I felt like that was so unique that I really had to exercise that. So I began to step into that more. And as I did that, it helped kind of change my identity because up until that point, I identified myself as a husband, a father, a CEO, a business leader. I was leading another nonprofit at the time. And all that stuff is well and good, but the reality is, is that those weren't equally weighted. Mm -hmm. And I put an awful lot of weight on being a CEO. And I knew that because my disposition on a daily basis changed based on how the business was doing, like in my guts, you know? And I think obviously we give a degree of that of ourselves into the, our vocational role. But I think for me, it was unhealthy. It was too much of it, you know? I mean, and if I had spent more time thinking about, you know, hey, I'm a good dad and I'm a good husband, and this and that, and the business is kind of faltering, but hey, you know, we'll give her the level best and get a good night's sleep tonight. And that wasn't my life. And so when I reflected back on that, it really, the move to the more benevolent sort of things helped kind of reshape my identity. And I think it put that CEO box or waiting in my life kind of in the proper perspective. Hmm. It still mattered. I still cared. But man, you know, my 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 life wasn't rattled, you know, if we had a bad quarter or some bad earnings and we didn't make a sales forecast. I mean, I wasn't like crawling up the walls and staying up at night looking at spreadsheets and those days were gone. Yeah, that's great to hear. Let's help the listener understand what your life as a CEO looked like. Tell us about the company you built and ran. Yeah. So I was an SOB, um, <laughs> son of the boss. Um, so my, my dad with a couple of other fellows founded design and build manufacturing company back in the seventies. And in the early nineties, we've kind of formed together a plan to buy out the other shareholders, which we did. And then by 96, my dad, decided, and this is my recalling of it, his story might be a little different, but what I remember was that he didn't want to do with people issues or money issues, which is a lot of issues. Yeah. So, <laughs> and and I, was, I was pining for that top job. And so he made me 
basically turned the day-to-day control of the business over to me. So I was, I don't know, 20 since I'm running this, you know, it was a rather small manufacturing company with my dad technically working for me if your dad actually ever works for you. But but at least if you drew it up, that's the way that it worked. A sibling, a brother and a brother-in-law that were both involved and very interesting at different times, they were in leadership roles, but for the most part, and even at the end, neither one of them were part of the senior leadership team. So they, we had to learn, and that's another topic that relates to family business, but we, I think better than a lot of family businesses that I've seen, we learned to be pretty astute at switching hats. I mean, we understood when we were board members, when we were shareholders, and when we were employees. And and a lot of that is to their credit, mm-hmm. you know, my brother and my brother-in-law, that they really learned kind of their place in that. But anyway, so that was that was a hoot. So we we did that for 21 years, built, I think I went through three leadership teams by the time I was done. I mean, can you imagine, you know, the son of the founder who's on the leadership team all of a sudden now is your boss and he's not 30 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. that must have been horrifying. <laughs> I feel like I should be sending like condolence cards or something like that to people that used that worked for me at the beginning. But you know, it was a growing opportunity. We and we grew it, and then figured out a way to to exit the family uh, a few years ago. And I'm going to interject here because you're being a little too humble. What I observed in the several years I was lucky enough to work with you and your team is that you genuinely care for the people around you, and you listen well. And so people can surrender control when they feel like they're being heard. Is my observation, and you did that as well as anybody I've seen, Rich. So. Pat yourself on the back a little bit, if you would. Wow, well, that's a high compliment, yeah. Peyton. Thanks. You know, and as I was thinking about our conversation today in leadership, one of the things that I don't know is, I don't see a lot written about or talked about as it relates to something core or central to, to leadership is really, I think it's a matter of the heart. I think really good leaders, I, I think you can be successful without it. Um, and I think we've seen that. If you, Well, first of all, depends on how you define success. Um We've seen people obtain worldly success, lots of things and money, not having it be a matter of the heart. But I think when it is a heart issue, you really care about the people that are coming along with you. You really care about what they care about. You really care about what the customers care about. And then your whole network of partners. I mean, if leadership is the we thing, you know, you look at the for-profit business. I mean, we had suppliers that we partnered with to loan them money to help expand their businesses so that they could provide better service to us. And in turn, the better services that they now have access to, they could market, they could sell those to other customers. And then they paid the money back on top of that, you know, yeah. so it's like a triple win, you know, that's a we thing in terms of leadership, you know, I mean, versus just using a hammer to, you know, slash my prices and improve my delivery. And same thing with employees, same thing with shareholders. If we're in it simply for ourselves and our own gains, man, I just think people are like way too transparent. And I think that that gets smoked out in a nanosecond. And who who wants to work for somebody like that? No way players, no level five leaders like Jim Collins talks about. Well, and I think, you know, my observation has been that you don't have to have ill intentions in order to struggle with what you just shared in that a lot of leaders are so busy, they just don't take the time to slow down and really contemplate what the other people they're interacting with need out of a relationship. They don't take the time to ask and then listen to the answer and factor it into the strategies and decisions they're making. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more. 
could not agree with you more. You know, there's an, there is an intentionality behind it. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. So like one of the things I learned was, this sounds pretty elementary, but one of the things I learned was important in leading a business or a group of people is that celebration and recognition matters. And that sounds like, oh, thanks for the help on that one, Rich. But see, to me, I'm not a natural celebrator. It's not in my DNA. Mm -hmm. I mean, we win a big job. I'm not high-fiving people. I'm like relieved. I'm like, okay, all right. And then like five seconds later, I'm moving on to the next thing. Where am I going to get the next one? Yeah, Yeah, it's just gone for me. But I listened and I learned that it was really important. And that was something I was terrible at. So what did I do? I made that somebody else's job <laughs> because it wasn't, I wasn't good at it. So I made somebody else responsible for managing a calendar. So we had, we had a steady stream of regular times that we gathered as a, as a team, both leadership teams, small group teams, as a whole company to communicate, to celebrate everything from daily bars in the summer to blood drives to pizza at the end of the quarter, if we made our metrics and, Everybody thought that that was so awesome about us. But the reality was it had the only thing it had to do with me was me knowing that it was important and knowing that I didn't know how to do it. Well, thank you for sharing that, because what you did was not lock yourself into your own limitations. You built a mechanism in your organization, gave the responsibility to somebody else and augmented your own capabilities. And again, another really important leadership discipline, the ability to delegate. So. Yeah. So I want to keep on this subject. So one of the things that intrigued me about this conversation is, is you have extensive experience as a business leader, as a coach for other business leaders, and as a spiritual leader. And so as a result, you get to see politicians, uh, clergymen and women, business leaders, all kinds of leaders lead. And so I wonder if you might just share what you believe the common thread amongst all great leaders you've had the pleasure of watching might be amongst all those groups. Well, that doesn't put me on the spot, Peyton. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting question because which way are we best to assemble that profile by looking at the bad ones well, or the good ones. And for the record, my follow-up question is, what are some traits that you see that people from all of those various forms of leadership typically struggle? What causes problems? So you can start it either way. I think we're going to flip the okay. scale. Well, so we, you know, we were just talking about heart, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we could begin there. I think that overly played self-interests, which to the extreme end would be narcissism, Mm-hmm. And I got to be careful here because when I talk about success, I'm not talking about, you know, who has the most toys at the end wins. I'm talking about peace of mind. I'm talking about respect. I'm talking about lots of people lining up at the microphone at your funeral because they all have something that they just feel like they need to say. There's a lot of ways to measure success. And to me, it's not about the money. Having said that, yeah, of course, I would be trivializing it to say that, you know, I mean, I was fortunate to be able to have enough success to be able to get in a position where I could make some lane changes in my life. And I'm grateful for that too. So I'm not completely diminishing it, throwing it out, but Mm -hmm. we need to put it where it belongs. So that heart issue and that genuineness is a big deal. I'm going to use another uncommon word in leadership that I don't hear talked about very much, and it's vulnerability. Mm. When I think of vulnerability, to me, it's so closely linked to trust because 
it's unexpected. And if I'm a top level leader and I'm willing to be vulnerable with my team, and I'm not talking about missing a, a quarter forecast and then breaking down into tears, that's just creepy, you know, but, um, <laughs> but really sharing from the heart in an appropriate way at appropriate times. What that does is it builds trust in the team. And the people that work for me on my immediate leadership team, I used to tell them that I had an 80-10-10 rule. And the math isn't exactly right, but it's to etch a concept in your brain. And so 80%, so when I hired you, so Mike, if you joined my team, I'd say, okay, Peyton, thing, excited to be working together. You're on my team now. Um, so look, Mike, when I hired you, I hired your intellect, your boyish good looks, your charm, your education, your experience, your contacts, your work ethic. I also hired your alcoholic stepson, your mother with Alzheimer's, you know, your bad hip, your, you know, so when we hire somebody, they're bringing the whole package with them. Right? The whole thing comes with, right? And so the thing I would instruct my team is that 80% of the time, I need you to keep that all in balance. I need you to keep that all in balance. So you got stuff going on outside of work, deal with that and hopefully deal with that mostly outside of work. And when you're working, be locked in and loaded. And then 10% of the time, you're going to come to me and say, Rich, I need a pause. I need a break. I need some extended time off. I need you to show me some grace on this. Hmm. And then the other 10% of the time, I'm going to say, I need you to step it up. You know, I'm flying you to Timbuktu. I need you to be able to be willing to stay there for three solid weeks, which means no returns over the weekends. So there's these emotional deposits and withdrawals that we make, right? Hmm. And I think that that's important. And so that last 10% that we ask our team into, if they trust us, they're going to give us that 10%. And the reality is, is that if they trust us and they're really high performers, we're going to have to stop them from giving us a lot more. Correct. Correct. Yeah. You mentioned something else in that is, I think, worthy of its own bullet point in this conversation, which is grace. So genuineness, caring, love, compassion, listening skills, but grace, the ability to recognize that everybody's carrying baggage and and every once in a while, it's okay to take the foot off the accelerator pedal and, and show somebody a little kindness it goes a long, long way, long, long way. I had a few examples that I won't bore the details, but a handful of examples over my career where I was in the position to either provide grace or not. And I always leaned towards grace and did that. And the truth is, is that there was a handful of those times that it really worked out. And I had long-term people that would bleed our company's colors. Yeah. And- there were other times where it ended up being a very imbalanced situation. And uh, I guess if we were keeping score, we would say that I lost. <laughs> but that isn't what grace is, right? No. Grace isn't a loan. Grace is a gift. Right. right. That's why I never loan money to family and friends. I'll give them money, but I'll never loan them money hmm. because the relationship matters. So if I want the relationship to matter and I'm going to show you grace, that's a gift. I don't expect anything in return for that, right? Yeah. Just like if you're my brother and you're not going to be able to make your house payment, I'm going to make your house payment. I'm just going to make your house payment. Because the problem is, is that now there's an expectation that's attached that one of us is going to make a mistake and there's going to be a misalignment yeah. and there's going to be friction in the relationship. So it comes back to values. What do you value more? Yeah. What do you value more? Yeah. And if you put relationships up on top, well, then the other stuff matters less. So I want to summarize this for our leaders by quoting Simon Sinek on this subject. And I was the host of a talk he did here in the Twin Cities probably 10 years ago. And, and one of the questions he was asked from the audience was, what's the one thing all leaders 
have in common? And he thought for a minute and he said, followers, which I thought was a brilliant answer. And what you summarized were a set of characteristics that make people want to follow you as a leader. And I've observed that people either want to follow their leaders or they don't, and you get what you pay for. And so for the listener out there trying to incorporate this into your own approach, please spend more time asking yourself, what can I do to be the kind of leader that people want to follow for what it's worth? You might ask yourself, who do I want to follow? Exactly. And what are their I, characteristics like and attributes? That's exactly right. Let's flip the switch a little bit and, and focus on the things, the destructive behaviors. You've seen a lot. I, I know that you're, you have a personal relationship with George Floyd, having spent time with him for many, many years. And we're watching a lot of social change happen in this uh, world at a very rapid pace. What are some of the mistakes you see in leadership that lead to such divide? Well, let's flip that around to the positive for a moment. Okay. I think the best leaders at any level, and so if we're talking about the government, recognize their own shortcomings. They shore those up with having a great team. They listen to the team. They make decisions that are hard, even at their own potential detriment that might be unpopular. Continue to listen to the constituency and are are constantly assessing, if I'm going to change my track, what's at the root of that? What's causing that? Is it because of pressure of popular opinion? Or is it because the experts are giving me new data? Because I think that makes a big difference. And in the political world, this isn't news to anybody. I mean, it seems like the vast majority of politicians, it's a, it's a vocation. It's not really public service, in my opinion, which means that there's a built-in agenda to get reelected, which flies in the face of sometimes making what might be an unpopular but right decision. Mm-hmm. As a CEO of a private company, I had the benefit of knowing that the decisions that I were making that were unpopular weren't going to get me fired. So quite frankly, it was like a thousand times easier to be able to make those hard decisions. And I'm not saying this to vilify any particular politician. It's an extraordinarily difficult job. And I know even from the writing that I've done, you know, when I look at the reviews of my books, you know, I'll get X number of good reviews and I'll get one bad one. And all I want to do is read the bad one, you know, and all I want to do is think about the, about the bad one. And so in politicians, I don't care how popular they are. We're very tough on them in the public eye. Mm-hmm. So I think it takes a very special and unique person to be able to do that job. And unfortunately it's maybe almost tilted to the fact that some of our best people in our society just don't want those jobs. Right. 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 Well said. What have you learned? I know you're a reflector and very introspective. What have you learned about your leadership and your role in the community uh, based on what you've watched happen over the course of 2020? So I have a lot of African-American friends. I'm deeply entrenched in that community. At the same time, I'm embarrassed to say that there's just things that I didn't recognize about the gaps between my life and upbringing and opportunities and maybe many of my friends, not all of them, but too many, too many of them. I feel like I've not been racist, but I feel like I haven't been anti-racist. And I feel like, to me, that's one of those things as a leader where saying that I'm anti-racist and what that means to me would make me unpopular to some people, maybe even some people listening. But as a leader, I'm willing to accept that burden that if if you no longer like me, follow me, I'm okay with that because 
that's a difficult decision and difficult thing for me to say that I believe is correct. Mm -hmm. What are you working on personally to become more anti-racist? Give us an example of the kinds of things you're not doing anymore or trying to do more of intentionally. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm doing is I'm trying to learn more about unconscious bias. And uh, I actually have a speaker coming in in February, Valerie Alexander, I think is her name. And she's going to be speaking to my Vistage group about that. So one of the great things about leading a Vistage group is, is that I picked the speakers. So yeah. it's my agenda. Now, granted, we've gone over this together, but I felt like it was very important in our community with the business leaders that I lead is to expose them to some different ways of seeing things and looking at things. And I'll tell you what, I feel like I'm a pretty forward thinking guy and I'm not a racist and stuff. And I'll tell you what, man, I was looking at a video that she produced and she did this little kind of thing in this test about unconscious bias. I was a miserable fit. I failed at every level. And I'm just like, oh my. I think I know oh the video you're talking about. And so did I. Yeah. Yeah. It was a TEDx talk, you know, and so I'm super pumped about having her here. Because, and again, you know, I don't like all these labels, you know, white privilege and this and that, because the problem is, is it seemed like those labels or Black Lives Matter. So that means something to you, means something to me. And if we're not perfectly aligned on that, now we've got this friction about it. So I try to stay away from the labels, but I try to hang my hat on the concepts. Like I want to be more inclusive with my brothers and sisters that don't look like me. And really anybody that is on the have side of the have, have not equation, I think has a duty and a responsibility yeah. to reach our hand out to try to help other people. Yeah. When you were, you were talking about the shortcomings that might contribute fuel to the fire of divisiveness earlier, one of the things I've noticed is the we seem to live in a soundbite world, not a concept and deep conversation about important ideas world. And as a result... What I see, and I've seen this on leadership teams for 13 years doing this work as an EOS implementer, when a team is aligned on the underlying concept, it's propensity to argue about the label or the name or something they don't align around is massive. And so I'll always say, you appear to be in violent agreement, meaning they're arguing <laughs> like hell, but they really agree on the path forward. And so that's my observation as well, Rich, is that if we could just all quit taking everything so personally and focusing on these little labels and sound bites and get in a room and say, you know, let's just love one another and try and make things better together, a lot of problems would seem less intractable. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So like as a pastor, um, I, I pastor people of all kinds of backgrounds and faiths and, and, and don't discriminate from that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I mean, Jesus really told us to do two things, love God and love others. It's pretty simple. Yeah. So even in that venue, I oftentimes don't introduce myself as a Christian because even that label now in this day and age has got baggage attached to it. And so that might be a pretty negative thing to a Muslim immigrant that came here, right? That's been indoctrinated about what that all means. Just like people that are evangelical Christians here might, you say Muslim, hair in the back of their neck stands up, right? Right. Again, another label that, you know, we, we package these things up when we, when we shove people into that box, that mold, and it's not fair. So I don't even, people say, oh, are you a Christian? I say, well, I wouldn't say that which is a great way to straight a conversation, right? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said you're a pastor. Oh, I am. But you're not a Christian? Well, you heard of Jesus, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, so 
I have studied his teachings and I believe what he said is true and I do I'm doing my best to follow him. Oh. And it's interesting because almost anybody from any background of any faith can accept that explanation, right? Right. Again, we've defined it. But 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 they have been conditioned to put a label on it that might reek as misaligned from my own beliefs with a lot of people who wouldn't argue with that belief, right? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot too many terrible terrible examples of Christians in the marketplace. And I don't have the time or desire to defend them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. I want to go back to something you said very early in this conversation, which was that your work as an author and in your nonprofits has involved spending a lot of time with people that others look at as despicables. Talk to us more about where that word and feeling comes from and how we might as listeners contribute to changing that perception. I've um, sadly been told too many times by people living in the homeless community that uh, I've been asked the question, do you know what it feels like to have somebody try not to look at you? Mm. So like even now, Peyton, I mean, we're on Zoom and you're up and I'm up and we're making some sort of eye contact or you stop at your local barista and, you know, they'll make eye contact. So we it's it's like the most simplest form of humanity that we exchange with each other is that simple contact of eyes. And most of us and, and I have been guilty of this most of my life is that we avert our eyes from those situations that people that are uncomfortable or we might be in a supermarket and we see somebody that's special needs and we we try not to look you know and it hurts mm. that's what i'm told is that it really really hurts and so as i understood that better i just completely changed my tact and when i get the opportunity to talk to people just like this and there's reasons that we don't make eye contact and to me the chief reason is is that because we're not prepared hmm. we're not prepared if I make eye contact, am I setting up some sort of a contract between you and me that there's going to be some sort of exchange, smile, uh, God forbid, some money or a food item or whatever? Is there going to be an expectation attached? Are you going to assault me? Or, you know, what's going to be, what's going to happen? So we're setting up this potential transaction that is gray water that we don't want to walk in because we can't see the bottom of it versus if we anticipate that and say, you know what? I heard this dude on this podcast and I do run into homeless people from time to time. I'm going to think a little ahead about, and I'm going to be intentional about it, and I'm going to be ready so that the next time I see a homeless person, I'm going to fill in the blank. Hmm. I'm going to have a gift card ready to hand them. I'm going to have a pair of socks. I'm going to smile and wave. But we haven't anticipated it. So a big part of being a leader is about being intentional about things and not allowing life to just kind of happen to us, but about being intentional about what's our response in every situation. Wow rather than pretending it doesn't exist by averting your eyes. Indeed, yeah, yep. Really good stuff. Take me back to the your early years. I can vividly remember when I first saw somebody leading or sort of connected with the concept of leadership. Can you remember that moment? <laughs> probably not. I probably smoking too much dope. <laughs> um, and that's a wrap. Yeah, that's right. Cut. (laughs) You know, and maybe this is, I don't know how other people see this. I don't have like super particular leaders where I hang my hat on things. I knew that somehow what came over me, even as a youth, was that I guess the highest form of success or garnering some sort of result was to have led people 
to and through it to achieve it versus having done it yourself. There's a certain amount of satisfaction in doing something yourself, but when you do it as a team, it's like way better. And so I, I was an athlete, I was involved in things. And so had some experience both as an individual and as a team to win and lose and have those experiences. And so became really attached to the idea that I want to lead and I want to lead a team. And, and, and I somehow knew I was somehow, I was going to lead a company one way or the other. I mean, it was just going to happen. We were going to make that happen. And what'd you do to groom yourself for that opportunity? I was uh, self-absorbed, <laughs> um, not terribly interested in other people's agendas, bad listener, impatient, pretty smart, not as smart as I thought I was. And I would say, and I'm not trying to be overly, overly deliberate or humble here, but and I wish I knew how to attribute this, but the one thing that I got right was that I knew I didn't know what I didn't know. Hmm. And so I mentioned earlier that now I now lead CEOs through Vistage. I was a 16-year member of Vistage, and I actually was belonged to two other kind of peer development, grooming, networking groups even before that. So literally the entire time when I was a VP of Ops to President CEO, that whole span of my career, I was being mentored and developed, and I had places to bring my questions and I had people that could mentor and develop me and call me out on my BS. And so, so I had people, I had my own team, right. That had my back that were bringing me along for the ride. And I remember joining that first Vistage group as the youngest member with one of the smaller businesses and feeling pretty small <laughs> at the time and seeing these other men and these other women running these successful businesses. And it seemed like whatever the situation that came up, they had something to say about it. And I'm like, I didn't even understand the question. And I wanted to be one of them to that group. Hmm. Like if I could be hmm. a leader among leaders, like what's better than that, yeah. you know? And that, that was my aim. Awesome. Have you ever felt absolutely stuck or flummoxed as a leader? What was the situation and how'd you work yourself out of it? Oh yeah. Lots of times. And, never alone. So the journey for my former company into EOS would be a good example. Mm -hmm. So we had had classic strategic consultants, a couple of really good ones, uh, good, smart people. We built great plans, grateful for the work that they did and we did at the time. And so we were kind of like, this is like our third time around the horn in that sort of a process. And I remember on my giant whiteboard, so I think, I think out loud and I think visually. So mm -hmm. giant whiteboard, colored yep. markers, doo, 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 doo. and I had this matrix up and I had EOS up and I had strategic planning. And I'm trying to figure out all the differences, everything from the time investment to the cost, to whatever. And when we met as a team, and I'd like to think I said it, but maybe somebody else said it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was a we thing. And it really came down to which one are we more likely to have success with? A great strategic plan that we implement poorly or great implementation with a weak strategic plan. And it and it didn't mean that we were gonna come out of it with a weak strategic plan, but but the reality was was that our execution was C plus at best, even with some of the brilliant plans that we had. And it came down to, do I trust my team enough to think that they're just smart enough to not be so stupid to work on stupid things, but <laughs> as we execute, but as we execute the things that they want to work on and we're nailing these things 80% strong or better, right? Are we going to move forward? And that was where the switch flipped for me is that, you know what? EOS was for me was really not about 
what I know, it's about what I do. Yeah. And when I read the traction book 10 years or more ago, whatever, the first time I went through it, you know, I'm, I flew a lot and I'm on a plane and I'm highlighting and whatever, whatever, whatever. And I get to the end and I'm like nodding my head like, yep, yep, I know that. You score cards, yep, no, yep, yep, oh, yeah, discipline, got that, yeah, accountability, oh, yeah. So I knew all of these things. I knew them all. And I was on my next trip and I still have the book with me in my book, in my backpack. And I took it out and I thought, okay, I'm not satisfied with my results. I'm reading a book to try to get better results. And all I did was basically convince myself that I already knew everything. Mm-hmm. So what's the gap there, right? right. And I, I literally opened the book back up and I went through my highlights and I thought, I'm going to ask myself this question about everything I highlighted. What do I know and what do I do? And that's right. what EOS for me does is it closes the gap between what I know and what I do. Hmm. I mean, so many entrepreneurs I talk to that look at traction, it's like, well, that's not rocket science. That's just kind of basic blocking and tackling. It's like, yep, is that what you do in your business? How's that working for you? How's that working for you? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that was where the yeah. switch went off. And and the team helped me come to that conclusion that, you know, it's not about what we know. It's about what that's we do. Right. We know a lot of things that we just don't have the discipline to do. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's about execution. One of your fellow Vista chairs was the first person I heard describe EOS as as a tool for strategic execution probably 10 years ago. And strategic planning is only valuable if it helps you execute better. So indeed, great concept. All right, I'm gonna wrap it up with one last question. And the purpose of this podcast is to inspire and inform and educate and improve leaders of all stripes from all different walks of life. And the best leaders I know are constantly wanting to learn new things and get better at stuff. So if you could give a young leader a gift that would help them become a better leader, what would you tell them to focus on or think about having listened to this podcast? Learn to listen without forming the response in your head. Mm, brilliant. brilliant. I've been working on that myself. It's, it's really super hard. And I'll give a tip. There's a way to actually get better at it. And the tip is to slow down. And be willing to be uncomfortable with just a little bit of white space between mm-hmm. that person ending and you beginning. Number one, it's so honoring to somebody else that they were heard. So honoring. Back to the vulnerability, back to the trust thing. It's a way to honor the other person. And it also, what it does is it's like a mechanism that clearly demonstrates that I wasn't hurrying to simply respond to what you're saying, but I really wanted to give you the space to be heard. And it's amazing how, as I've worked on this, and and I got a long ways to go, it's super hard, but as I've been working on this, the recognition that I get from other people, like they notice this, they really notice this. So I think learn to listen, truly listen, and slow down and hold back on your response. And as a top level leader, if you're leading a team and you've got all these brilliant ideas, you just can't wait to lay on the team, speak last. Let everybody else talk. And the reality is, is that by the time you give your answer, you already have all this other data that everybody's talked about. That's right. And you can sum that all up and lay on one little gold nugget on top of that. And everybody thinks you're a genius. <laughs> no, you've got, you're a disciplined listener is what you are. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you, Rich. This has been a fabulous conversation. And I know our listeners are going to be enriched because of the time we spent together. All because of you, I might add. Before I wrap up, the people who want to learn more about you and the things you're passionate about, where should I tell them to go? Um, so I've got a website. It's my name, richardbar.com. So it's R-I-C-H-A-R-D 
and be like boy a h r dot com. From that, there's connections to our ministry. There's my blog, my books, all that stuff is there. Awesome. Thank you very much. Can't wait to watch you work in the next part of your life and uh, grateful to be able to call you a friend. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me. Agreed. Me too. If you got value from today's episode, do me a favor. Share the episode with a friend. If you know someone who would benefit from the conversation I had today, make sure to share it with them.